Who we believe people to be will determine the role that we let them play in our lives. My two-year-old daughter displays this all the time. When she is feeling playful, she'll chase our dog Zoe around the house knowing that Zoe is her friend. When thunder seemingly shakes our home, she runs into my arms because I am her protector. When she falls and scrapes her knees, she reaches out to her mom because mom's kisses fix boo-boos the quickest. Who we believe people to be determines the role that we let them play in our lives. This is true for Jesus. In each of the Gospels, there's this incredible story near the beginning where Jesus goes into Judean countryside where John the Baptist, he was baptizing his disciples. Jesus shows up and John, he, he knows, he knows who this man is. Jesus instructs John, he says, hey, I want you to baptize me. But John the Baptist, he has this, this pretty rational response. He says, Lord, me? Shouldn't you be baptizing me? Like, why would I baptize you? But Jesus, he insisted and it was so. The sky opened up and God the Father spoke to his son. It was this incredible moment. After all this came to pass, the followers of John the Baptist, they began squabbling. They went to John and they said, that man, that man that you told us about, that man that, that you baptized in the Jordan, look, no one even wishes to be baptized by us anymore. Everyone is just going to him. And John responds, like, I've, I've told you from the beginning, I'm not the Messiah. That's not who I am. Have you forgotten who I have said that he is? Therefore, I must become less and he must become more. See, see who we believe Jesus to be will determine the role that we let him play in our lives. And John the Baptist, his followers, myself, you, we each have to have an answer for this question. When Jesus says, who do you say that I am? How do you respond? Jesus is, you fill in the blank. My name is Dina Morgan. I live in Cyprus and I've lived here, basically grew up here my whole life. I was raised a preacher's kid, um, which basically means I was raised in the church and um, all eyes were always on me. When I was in fifth grade, my mom took me to the pediatrician. Um, they found a mass under my arm. And within two days, I was in the halls of MD Anderson being diagnosed with Hodgkin's disease lymphoma. All my friends were out spending the night with their friends on the weekends and having slumber parties and I was uh, getting chemotherapy, really fighting for my life. About two months after diagnosis, uh, the elders gathered me around in the church body and they laid hands on me and anointed me with oil. And it was such a special time, but I'll never forget what they said over me, which was, God, we pray for her healing so that Dina one day will do great things for you. If all eyes were on me as a preacher's kid before then, they were especially on me afterwards. On the other side of chemotherapy, I was declared in remission. And I went on to do exactly what the elders told me I would do, is do great things. And that became my battle cry. Um, they told me I wouldn't develop physically or emotionally or intelligently. And um, I played on the state volleyball team. We won the state championship. 
I got a degree in applied mathematics with the full academic scholarship. Once I graduated from Texas A&M, I propelled to the top of energy very quickly. I got married and had two amazing boys, and that marriage fell apart, and I was still determined to continue to do great things, and I did. Um, but it never really let me where I needed to go. It got to the point where most weeks it was, Mom, where are you traveling to? And who are we staying with? And who's going to pick me up? And I remember one year and one night, I, I fell apart. The boys were just wearing their backpacks. They were just little vagabonds, um, did not settle in well. They were between my house, their dad's house, my parents' house, and they needed me. God saved my life from cancer, and therefore I felt like I had to make sure my life was great and perfect so that no one would question whether I should have lived or not from my cancer. If I'm the ruler of my own life, I'll never be happy. There'll never be enough where I look back and say I've, I've done enough because I still there's still more that I have to accomplish and there's still more things that I have to do. And if I'm not doing great things and people aren't telling me that I'm doing great things, then was my life worth really saving after all? Like Dina, most of us have a plan for our lives. We, we want to be successful. We want to, to be recognized that, that, that we have gifts, that we have talents, we're intelligent. We want to be viewed as valuable. But what happens when our plans don't intersect with God's plans? What happens when his definition of success for our lives doesn't match up with our own definition? Or, or maybe it, it's more than that. What if it seems like they are working in direct opposition against each other? See, when my will lines up with God, when God says, Josh, today you are going to drink coffee. And so I drink coffee knowing that I pretty much do that every morning because I, I love coffee. That's not obedience, that's convenience. It's convenient that my will matches up with his, but I'm not actively submitting myself to him. It's when our will does not match up with God's, when our plan is different, that we are really tested. And here is where it matters. See, within every heart lies a throne. Within every heart lies a throne, and we decide who sits on it. My wife and I, we, we, we play this game, and, and maybe you can relate. See, it's when I'm driving in the car, she tells me everything that she would be doing if she were driving the car. Honey, uh, I'd get in the left lane right now. <laughs> and even though that is exactly what I had planned on doing, now I'm waiting an extra 10 seconds in an effort to let her know that this was my decision. As silly as that is, why do we do this? Because we are battling for control. In a way, we both want to be in the driver's seat. And Jesus, he lets us choose. He lets us choose who the ultimate authority is for our lives. And oftentimes, if we are honest, we find that this driver's seat, that this throne is incredibly comfortable. It's nice being in control. It's nice being the masters of our own lives. But what would it look like if we gave up the seat? In Acts 14, Paul and Barnabas were following God's will for their lives. It says in verse eight, in Lystra, there sat a man who was lame. 
I mean, he couldn't walk, and, and he had been that way from birth. He had never walked. He listened to Paul, and as he was speaking, Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and called out, Stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. Everyone was astounded. This was a miracle. In verse 11, the crowd said, The gods have come to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes. Boom. Just like that, Paul and Barnabas are placed on the thrones of the hearts of many. They are viewed as gods in human form. People even started making sacrifices to them. And for some of us, though we, we, we might not want to admit it, this is the whole point of thrones. This is the whole reason that we work so hard under the sun, how we determine the steps that we take. We want to be recognized. We want the reputation. We want people to look up to us. We want to be viewed as successful. We want the spotlight. And I'm not saying that having a good reputation or being encouraged for hard work, I'm not saying those are bad things. I'm just saying that they were never meant to be the motive behind why you act or why you don't act. And to be honest, this is a tension that I have to battle with. A few years ago, I was leading a small group, a, a group of young adults back in Florida. We were sharing in small group. And the night prior, my bride Jenny and I had gotten into a huge argument. And in that argument, I looked nothing like Jesus. I was mean, I was ugly. I wasn't the husband that God had called me to be. And as I sat in that small group, I could feel God telling me to share it. But there was this tension in my heart. I didn't want them to think that I was, I was a bad husband. I, not to mention, how could I be a pastor if I had the propensity to stray so far? Actually, let me rephrase. How could I be their pastor if they knew I had the propensity to stray so far? That was one of my who is king moments. Did I want to be honest or did I want to sit on a throne of lies to retain my self-image? This was a real tension for me and I chose to be honest. Paul and Barnabas weren't interested in reputation and though they, they had a spotlight, they were constantly shining it on someone else. They heard the crowd was calling them gods and began, they, they began tearing their clothes. Verse 14, it says, they rushed out into the crowd shouting because for them, this was urgent. It wasn't a time to delay. They knew whose throne it was and they didn't want it to be confused. They shouted, verse 15, friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to, to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. They shouted, we are not gods. We are not the king. We don't rule over you as master. In fact, everything that we do have is from the one that we serve. Do not get this confused. And this is where things take a turn. In verse 19, it says, Then some Jews came from Antioch and, and Iconium, and they won over the crowd. Paul and Barnabas made it clear. They said, We don't belong on the throne of your hearts, but a vacant throne won't stay vacant for long. 
And despite Paul's efforts to point the crowd to God, to the only one who truly fit on this royal seat, they chose to serve these Jewish men. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city thinking he was dead. God, this wasn't the plan. <laughs> Paul just wanted to, to go to the city to preach the good news of Jesus. He wasn't trying to be called a God and he wasn't asking for stones to be thrown at him. And I, I doubt his end game was to be left in a broken heap outside the city. Yet here he was. God, this doesn't feel like a, a real motivator to place you on the throne. You're telling me that I can do exactly what you ask and it could cost me everything. I was finishing my master's this fall and it was my final class before graduation. And each week I had to take a simple one question quiz. And here's all it said. I have read all the required text and material for this week, true or false. The first four weeks of this eight week course, I had answered true, even though I had never come close to finishing all the reading. It was another who is king moment and I had my answer. I self-justified, I'm so busy with ministry and, and caring for my family. Besides, I'm doing great on all the tests. Why should I let this quiz impact my grade? Not to mention, I'm the world's slowest reader. I can't be held responsible for that. I saw the cost of my honesty. I saw how it would affect my grade. I mean, this was my last class. I self-justified and as king, I made my own rules and I lied. I imagine that these Jewish men, the ones that stoned Paul, they did their share of self-justifying. Surely they gave a compelling case as to why the crowd should stone Paul, why it wasn't just a good idea, but it was essential. The truth is many of us do this all the time. We self-justify our own kingship. We say things like, I didn't lie, I, I, I just didn't tell the truth. We hide, uh, we hide from our consequences or even use consequences as a reason to justify our own dishonesty. We rewrite the rules saying things like, I think sex before marriage is fine as long as, as long as you're in love. We act like looking is okay as long as you don't act on it. I would give generously, but money's tight right now. How we feel quickly becomes more important than what God says. And suddenly being obedient to God's word is more a suggestion than it is an expectation. We take what God has asked us to do and we look for loopholes or even rewrite it all together as though we know better than him, as though we fit on the throne that we love to sit in. And there I was, four weeks into a course, knowing that I had been dishonest, knowing that I would never get caught, that each week I would have yet another chance to lie. I felt the Lord of my life convicting me, telling me to get out of his chair. I said, okay, God, and I committed to being honest for the rest of the quizzes from there on out. Loophole. He responded gently but firmly. Josh, I need you to get out of my chair. I'm sure Paul had a similar conversation with God. As he was lying on the ground outside of the city after being pelted with stones, the disciples, they gathered around him and God had surely made his plan clear. I imagine Paul asking, God, are you, are you sure? 
This already almost cost me my life. And God responds, yes. And Paul in verse 20, it says, he got up and he went back into the city. He says, God, I'm not going to self-justify. I'm not going to hide from the consequences of following you. You are my king. I will serve you and follow you. I will go where you tell me to go and I will do what you tell me to do. Like Paul, I had to make a choice. Jesus said, Josh, you need to call your teacher and be honest and tell him that you are willing to face whatever consequences he deems fit. I was afraid. My life wasn't on the line like Paul, but my degree was. I had cheated. I had been dishonest. They would have been within their rights to put me out of, to put me out of my program. But I couldn't stand for God while seated in his chair. So I called my teacher. I gave no excuses. I told him that I had been convicted about my dishonesty, that I was willing to face whatever consequences he deemed fit and I asked for forgiveness. And he forgave me. He, he, he prayed with me, celebrated me. He helped me make a plan moving forward so that I could graduate in good standing. But me passing this class was not the victory. My success and my accomplish, accomplishments are not the victory. They're just an example of God's generosity. The victory was that God was exactly where he belonged. I was worn out, didn't know who I was, struggling, really questioning kind of who was in control in my life. It was about a year ago, and I walked away from corporate America and said, I'm going to retire. And I lost my identity. And the thought of Jesus was enough was not enough for me. And I, I didn't, I just lost my identity. And it was August of 2019, and really hard summer with some personal situations that just blew up. And I listened to Bob's sermon at a soccer game. And he was talking about David when he was leaving Jerusalem. And he was, David had the Ark of the Covenant. And Bob's sermon was how David said, I don't, I don't want the Ark, send the box back. I am gonna choose to trust God with all my dreams and my hopes and in my life. And, and Bob looked at the camera in that moment and he just said, David said, send the box back. And I just prayed that night that I just want to send the box back. I don't, I don't want to have something that I'm dependent on. And that night, I've never met Sue Reed personally. And I just told her I wanted someone to pray with me and to meet with me. And she did. And her whole challenge to me was, you've got to find identity in just being a child of the Lord. And she really journeyed with me and prayed with me and helped me to find my identity in just being just being me, I didn't have to perform. I didn't have to be identity in corporate America or philanthropic or a soccer mom or anything else. I could just be Dina. And this February, this past February, I went to Israel with my mom and dad. And I got to walk in the steps where Jesus was. 
And there was one afternoon that we took a worship boat tour over the Sea of Galilee. And the men on that boat were all from the States. They were all touring the Holy Lands as well. And we all raised our hands and just sang Amazing Grace. And the leader of that group came up to me afterwards and told me that when he first walked on the boat and saw me, his heart just wept for me and felt that my cries at night were, were gonna come to an end and that I didn't need to find identity in anything else other than being a child of the King. And he prayed over me and he laid his hands on me on the Sea of Galilee where Jesus once was. And once I gained my security and my confidence, there's such freedom in where I am today. There's such freedom and yeah, I'm still working and I still have a job, but it doesn't define me. And I'll never let corporate America define me again. And I don't have to anymore. I don't have to perform. I don't have to be the best because I'm simply enough who I am. And it was not my life anymore to pursue. Um, and all I needed to do was just just be me. And, and, and I felt that my identity didn't need to be in anything else. It only needed to be a child of the King. There are so many ways that we challenge Jesus's kingship. It can look like building a reputation for our own pride, forging your own way, making up your own rules, self-justifying, or like Dina, trying to earn something that's not yours to earn. God responds to these challenges with Proverbs 3, 5 through 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding in all your ways. Acknowledge him and he will direct your path. If God is sitting on the throne, it is going to require trust. You're not in control anymore. There are going to be times where his plan doesn't make sense to you. In fact, all rationale might even state, don't do that thing that he tells you to do. <laughs> my, my friend Adam taught me about this. During one of our first meetings, he told me that there was a warrant out for his arrest in another state. At the time, he didn't know Jesus, but, but he came to church because there was just something different about these people and he, he wanted to figure it out. Fast forward, he accepted Jesus and, and he was saved from the price of the sin that he had in heaven. But on earth, he was still a wanted man. As Adam pressed into discipleship and spending time with Jesus, a conviction gripped his heart. He had to face his past. He knew that this could mean up to two years in jail, but God had spoken, his path was clear. Moments like this make me think of Jeremiah 29, 11, though probably not for the reasons you think. It says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. On the front end, this sounds incredible. This is a great promise that God is making toward his people. But we need to remember that God is saying this to his people while also telling them that they're headed to exile and that they will be there for many years. I, 
I, I can't imagine that this felt like prosperity. I doubt that it felt harmless like, like a hope, like a future. But God's plans are not limited to what we can see. His goodness isn't limited to our opinions and no matter how much we try, there isn't a box that we can make him fit inside of. Because of Adam's situation, his case could not be settled outside of court. It wasn't about attorneys. He had to fly to Massachusetts to stand before a judge and he was to be at that judge's mercy. Best case, he'd have his probation extended two years. Worst case, jail. People had told him that, that it didn't make sense what he was doing, that the timing just didn't really fit into to, to, to what made sense, that, that this really wasn't a great plan. But Jesus was on the throne and there was no stopping him. Jail or not, exile or not, prosperity or not, Adam had given over his life to the king of kings. And this king said, go. Adam and, and Matt, the guy that was discipling him, bought plane tickets and they flew to face a sentence that Adam had earned. Adam went to the courthouse and turned himself in. <laughs> but they weren't ready for him. They asked him to come back a month later. And when they came back, Adam stood before the judge, ready to face his past head on. I think of of David facing Goliath, Stephen sharing the gospel before being stoned to death, Shadrach and his buddies stepping into the furnace, Joshua and Caleb spying on the giants, Daniel sitting down with lions. When it comes to following God, no matter what the cost, Adam was in good company. Adam, he stood before this judge, fully at his mercy. The judge looked at him knowing he was a different man and threw away all the charges. He walked into that courthouse guilty and left a free man. That's the gospel. But if Adam had kept to his own plan, if Adam remained the ruler of his own life, if he self-justified and hid from the consequences, if he chose to lean on his own understanding, if he took the advice of others that maybe weren't pressed into God's kingship, if he rewrote the rules, if he never had followed the path that God had set before him, he wouldn't have had this testimony. He wouldn't be a free man. Tozer highlighted this when he said, in every Christian's heart, there is a cross and a throne. And the Christian is on the throne till he puts himself on the cross. And if he refuses the cross, he remains on the throne. Jesus says this plainly in Matthew 16, 24. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. We can't follow Jesus if we don't let him lead which means denying ourselves the throne that was never ours to begin with. In Deuteronomy 15, there is a law that is shared. It speaks of a person that was sold into slavery, that they should serve their master for six years and on the seventh year, they would be set free. Not only were they set free, but they're blessed by their master who will give them generously of, of his flock, of his wine and of his wheat. However, the this, this slave could make another choice. 
He could choose to remain a slave to his master for the rest of his life. He could say, I love my master and I will devote my life to him. The master will then take an awl, which is, which is like this, this pointy puncturing tool, and, and he will thrust it through the servant's ear into a doorpost. Wow, <laughs> that took a turn. So not only does this guy not, not, not taking the reward that is his, uh, he's, not, he's not actually getting the freedom that he deserves, he's choosing to remain to be a slave, but he is also getting this crazy ear piercing. <laughs> What's that about? Well, from that point on, every time he went into the town, when he went to the market, when he was at work or at rest, everyone that saw him knew that he loved his master and that he chose to serve him, to follow him for the rest of his life. See, Jesus gives us the same choice. He gives us the option when we let him be our master, when we let him be our king, when we decide to dedicate our lives to serving him, our lives become marked that everyone that sees us at school, at home, at work, as we're buying groceries, they know that we love him, that we love our master and we chose to follow him. See, everyone, no matter who they are, whether they're a follower of John the Baptist, a young man with a warrant out for his arrest or a member of Life Church, everyone has to make a decision about who they believe Jesus to be. And for me, I want my life to be so marked that my response is clear to anyone with eyes. Jesus is my King. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we love you. And we are excited about all the things that you are doing in our lives, all the workings that you have put together and pieced together. We're excited about the plan that you have for us. And God, if, if we're honest though, it's a lot easier to accept your grace and your comforting and your forgiveness and sometimes harder to follow your will. And God, I, I just pray that we have hearts that are submitted to yours, that we get out of your chair, we let you sit on the throne, that you can tell us the steps that we need to take in our lives, that we can fully follow you. And God, let the way that we follow you, whether it is, whether it is to joy and blessing or whether it is to hardship, whatever it is you call us to, Lord, let us do it with eyes that see your heart. Let us do it with a light that shines around everybody that is near us. Let us do it with a passion and a fire for you. God, we trust you. We trust that you can have control. We trust that you can be in the driver's seat. We give you control today. In your name, amen. Oh, hail King Jesus. Oh, hail the Lord of heaven and earth. Oh, hail King Jesus. Oh, hail the
deepest lie The darkest day in history They're on a cross they made for sinners For every curse is blood atoned One final breath and it was finished But not the end we could have known For the
What a great message. What a powerful story as we reflect on Jesus being our King. And so I don't know what that looks like for you this week. As you look to follow Jesus, that he is not only Savior, but he's King. And as we continue in this series, my hope and my prayer is that you can't become more like Jesus if you don't know Jesus. And that's why we've done this series. And so I hope that you find uh, many different things to, to have some application to walk out this coming week. So I wanna thank you for joining in with us. We appreciate uh, just connecting. If there's anything that we can do, as we mentioned before, please let us know. Send us an email, send us a text, call. However we can serve you, however we can care for you, we wanna be able to do that. So let us know, go online, fill out the card. Uh, and if you're a guest, again, thank you so much for joining in. We hope that you'll come back as next week we continue in the series, Jesus Is. You guys have a blessed day.